The famous uh, author and writer uh, Dave Barry says that he pretty much learned everything about life from his mother. He writes, my mother taught me about anticipation when she said, just wait until your father comes home. (laughs) My mother taught me about receiving when she said, you're going to get it when we get home. Uh, My mother taught me about logic when she said, if you fall out of that swing and break your neck, you're not going to the store with me. (laughs) Mother taught me about medical science when she said, if you don't stop crossing your eyes, they're going to freeze that way. Uh, Mother taught me about thinking ahead when she said, if you don't pass your spelling test, you'll never get a good job. My mother taught me about humor when she said, if that mower cuts off your toes, don't come running to me. Um, Think about that one for a minute, but... My mother taught me how to become an adult when she said, if you don't eat your vegetables, you'll never grow up. My mother taught me about genetics when she said, you're just like your father. My mother taught me about my roots when she said, were you born in a barn? My mother taught me about the wisdom of age when she said, when you get to be my age, you'll understand. And my mother taught me about justice when she said, one day you'll have kids and I hope they turn out just like you. And some of you are getting to reap the the benefits of that right now. And uh, as I said in my prayer, honestly, all kidding aside, um, we here at our church, we, we're so appreciative of, of mothers and the efforts that you all put in every day to, to raise your kids up and uh, teaching them to love Jesus. That truly, it, it doesn't happen by accident. I, I know um, when, when a kid uh, grows up to love the Lord, I know that there are parents behind that child that, that motivated them and taught them and set an example for them. And one of the greatest gifts my mom and dad ever gave me and and my older sister, Lisa, one of the greatest gifts they ever gave us was we knew they loved each other. And and honestly, if you want to give your kids the the greatest gift in in the world outside of faith, that's the greatest gift. But if you want to give them a great gift outside of faith, uh, as spouses, love each other deeply. And we're going to actually see this with Jesus this week. Now, I know, despite what Dan Brown has written in his books, Jesus was never married physically, right? Um, we all understand that, right? All right? I don't want to do a separate sermon on that. But um, Jesus was never married physically. But the Bible says that the church was and is his bride. So in a very spiritual sense, Jesus actually, spiritually speaking, was married to this entity called the, the church, and if you ever want to know as a side note, guys, how to, how to love your wife, just examine the way that Jesus loves the church, and you'll learn every lesson that you need to learn about how, how to love your, your wife the way, the way that you should, because Jesus loves the church deeply. Now, if you have your Bibles, open up to the last book of the New Testament, uh, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And I talked about this last week, but I want to share this again because I had kind of a freak out moment. I had uh, gone on sabbatical last year and I had planned this whole Revelation series and uh, I organized it to be around Easter leading into July. We'll be in this into the middle of July. And uh, I was in the shower one day at home, you know, away from my computer, away from all of my notes on the series. And all of a sudden, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I said, we've got this Revelation series and in the middle of it is going to be Mother's Day. And I couldn't remember what day Mother's Day was, and I couldn't remember what day each of the sermons was. And all I could imagine was that on Mother's Day, I had planned to preach and teach on the beast. And I said, and I was driving back to the office, I said, Jesus, please don't let it be. Please don't let it be. And, and when, I got, when I got home, or when I got back to my office and checked it, God and his providence had organized for me to, to talk about the church, the thing Jesus loves so much, his bride to talk about the church on Mother's Day. And I'm very, very happy uh, to get to do this today. I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, 
My favorite thing to preach on is the thing I preached on last week, Jesus. Uh, I could have gone on and on and on with that sermon, and somebody goes, I thought you did. No, I could have gone, gone further last week. My second favorite thing to exalt and talk about is the church. I love the local church. And, and as much as I love the local church, we're going to discover that uh, I and you, we do not love it as much as Jesus does. So let's read uh, Revelation 1, 17 through 20. When I saw him, this is Jesus. He's just got done with this image of Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed, I love this language, he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen and what is, not, uh, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you have seen in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And we discover earlier, just a couple verses before this, that when we see this kind of magnificent picture of Jesus, we learn that he is among the lampstands. Jesus is standing within and among the lampstands. And we learn in these verses I just read to you that the lampstand is the church. So what we learn from this passage of scripture, first off, is that Jesus stands among the church. He's with the church. The church is important to him. And I love this so much because as we're going to see in the next couple chapters, if you want to skip ahead a little bit, chapters two and three, one of the things that we're going to discover is that these churches that Jesus stands among and with, these churches are hugely messed up. Right? They have issues. They have sins that they're trying to overcome. They are messed up in every way a church can be messed up. And yet Jesus doesn't turn his back on the church. He loves the church in all its mess. So he say, the church is a mess. The church is a mess. You know why? Because we're all sinners. Every one of us is sinners, and we bring our sin to the church. So yes, the church is messed up, but Jesus never turns his back on, on the church. I, I've sometimes heard people that will visit another church, and, and they'll come back, and you know, they're on vacation or whatever, and they'll come back, and they'll say, I visited this church, and Jesus was nowhere to be found in that church. Really? It's interesting you think you're in a position to know that, first of all. Um, Jesus was nowhere. People serving you at the door, Jesus wasn't there. Right? People greeting you as you walked in, Jesus wasn't there. His name being exalted in the music service, Jesus wasn't there. Jesus is among and with the church. And listen, I talk to a lot of people, and I think we probably have some people that fit into this category here on Mother's Day, but I talk to people that have had a really bad church experience in the past. And they were mistreated in their church, condemned, whatever. And they use that uh, as, a, as a reason to walk away from the church. And I, I understand that. But listen, a guy in our small group this week said this. I thought this was really, really good. He said, at some point, we all had a bad doctor's experience or a bad dentist's experience or a bad banking experience. And we didn't say, I'm done with doctors forever. Right? We didn't say, you know... And, and here's the other thing I would say this. I pray that you, you hear this with the love that it, that, that it comes from. Um, Jesus didn't turn his back on the church, and you shouldn't either. I, I know the church isn't perfect, but Jesus stands among and with the church. So one of the questions I get a, a lot, honestly, um, is, is church even necessary? 
do I need to go to church to be a Christian? Do I need to even be involved in the church? It seems like this broken institution. Do, do I need to, if I'm going to be a Christian, do I need to go to church? And, and listen, I wouldn't tie those things together in that way, but here's what I would say to you. Again, I know I sound like a broken record. Jesus stands with the church, and you should too. Here's the other thing I would say to you. If you want to see Jesus, I, I, I agree you can see Jesus in a sunrise or sunset. You can see Jesus in nature. But honestly, if you want a biblical promise from where you can see Jesus, if you're searching for Jesus, I just want to see him. Where can I see him? The Bible promises you'll find him in the local church. So if you want, if you want to see Jesus more clearly, I would, I would implore you to, to get involved in, in a church. And the other thing I would say to that question is, if we're going to be like Jesus, and the goal of every Christ follower is to be like Jesus, if we're going to be like Jesus, Jesus is with the church. So if I want to be like him, I need to be with the church despite its brokenness despite its fra- uh, all the uh, fractioning that's happened over the years and, and all the difficulty, Jesus stands with the church. Now, let me pause just for a minute. Because I understand the pain behind that question. Do I need to be involved in the church if I'm going to be a Christian? I understand the pain behind it. My church growing up splintered and broke and turned on each other, and it was a a terrible experience. I felt called to the ministry in middle school. By the end of high school, I was not going to go into the ministry, Uh, and the the reason I wasn't going to go into the ministry was my local church. So I understand, let me kind of paint the picture I'm trying to paint this way. There are two types of seekers. There are people in church, there are people not in church. People not in church, there are two types of them. There are the unchurched, They weren't raised in the church. They've never been to church. They've never been a a part of a church at all. They're they're just unchurched. And then there's the de-churched. The de-churched are people that have gotten hurt by the church, and they've walked away from the church, and they've given up on the church. They most often classify the church as dysfunctional. Now, with the de-churched, usually in the de-churched, there's some life event that drives them back to the church. They were in the church, they were hurt by it, they've left, and then there's some event that drives them back. For some, it's like a tragedy, right? Somebody in their family dies or or gets sick. Oftentimes, even more than that, it's a really positive experience. Like they get married or they end up having children, and they think, my my children uh, need need to know Jesus, and there's something inside each and every one of us that says, I got to go church. Why? Because Jesus is among the church, right? So I don't want to go back to that first point right now, but anyway. So there's something inside of them that says, my children need church, I, I need, my children need Jesus, I need to get to, to, to church. Now here in central Illinois, in my experience, we have very, very few unchurched. People that, you know, who is this Jesus of whom you speak, right? We, we have very, very little of that here, here in Decatur, Illinois. You know what we have a ton of? De-churched. We have a ton of de-church people, people that have been hurt and disillusioned and they had a bad experience. And even more specifically, friends and family of Northwest, we are seeing increasing numbers at Northwest of the de-church. And if that's you, here's what I want to say to you. I want to say a couple things. One is, we're so happy you're trying church again. We are so happy you're trying church again. I'm sorry you had a bad experience, but no, God loves you so much. He wants to have a relationship with you, and I hope this is the start of a really great journey between you and God. And here's the thing I want you to know. Jesus is in the church. As you get more and more involved at Northwest, you will see Jesus in the lives of the people here because he's with the church. Now to everyone else, all right? That's what I want to say to the D-Church. 
to everyone else, and this is where Jesus is going in this text. Hear me on this. It is so important. I can't tell you how important this is. It is so important that we, as regular members and attenders of Northwest, we do everything in our power to create a healthy church environment. Because we don't want to be a church that creates the de-churched. We want to be a church where, where people come in and they see Jesus in our ministries, they see Jesus in our people, they see Jesus in our interactions. So at a church like that, we handle conflict differently. We don't gossip, we don't slander, we lovingly talk through our problems. In a church like that, we love and serve each other well because people see Jesus in our service. In a church like that, we sacrifice well. We give to those outside of the family well. In short, we do everything in our power to create a healthy church environment. And this is why I believe Revelation 2 and 3 is in the Bible. Um, when you're reading Revelation, it, Revelation 2 and 3 it almost seems out of place because in Revelation 1, you have this image of the Son of Man. Right? You have Jesus with this fire in his eyes and you know, this glorious, amazing picture of Jesus. You have that in Revelation 1. In Revelation 4, we get this image of heaven, right? this beautiful, incredible image of heaven. And in the middle of it, in Revelation 2 and 3, you've got Jesus addressing the churches of the first century. And it seems out of place to me, maybe it does to you as well. So why is it there? Here's why I believe it's there, is Jesus is saying to these churches, as the end times begin to unfold, all right, the church carries with it the message of Jesus. And as we carry with us the message of Jesus, it is so, so important that churches be healthy and churches be vibrant and churches be on mission. And so Jesus takes a minute before the rest of the revelation unfolds. Jesus takes a minute and, and he addresses these seven churches in the first century. And he says, this is what it looks like to, to be a healthy, vibrant church. Because you carry with you such an important message. There is a reason that the image of the church in the book of Revelation is a lampstand. Right? Because a lampstand gives light. And so Jesus addresses the church as a lampstand in a couple of different scenarios. And this is why it is so important that, that to Jesus that, that we be healthy. Because as the end times begin to unfold, and I believe, I said this last week, but I believe the end times started with the first ascension of Jesus. We've been in the end times for 2,000 years. But as those continue to unfold, people are going to need hope. Where are they going to find it? They're going to find it in the message of the church. As the end times begin to unfold, people are going to need peace. Where are they going to find it? They find it in the message of the church, Jesus. People are going to need salvation. Where do they find it? They find it in the message of the church, which is Jesus. People are going to need some place to turn as things begin to unfold. They're going to need some place to turn. Where are they going to turn? They're going to turn to the one that the church exalts and proclaims and has its life in, and that is Jesus. So it is so critically important to Jesus that we be healthy. And I think this is why you read uh, in Revelation that each of these churches in Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3, each of them has an angel assigned to them. That is how important health is to Jesus. He said, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I am going to assign an angel to each and every church to help that church be healthy. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but did you know that there is an angel assigned to the Northwest Christian Church. I think that's cool. 
Just me. Okay, that's cool. Now, um, I, I, think, I think it's cool. There is an angel assigned to each and every church because God cares about the health of the church so much. And it appears as though this angel delivers messages from God to the leadership of these churches. It's absolutely amazing how God has set the whole thing up. Now, in addition to that, he cares about the health so much that he is going to now personally address each of these seven churches. And this is where my planning has broken down. Um, I preached a series on this a couple years back, and you can call the office this week, I think, and probably get that series. But we do not have time to go through all seven. But I want to show you kind of the, the top ones in my mind and how Jesus addresses health. Because I could talk to you and ask you, what, what does a healthy church look like? And I get your perspective. Uh, you could ask me, what do you think a healthy church looks like? And I could give you my perspective. But wouldn't it be amazing to have the perspective of Jesus for what a healthy church should look like. And that's exactly what Revelation 2 and 3 is. It is the perspective of Jesus on what a healthy, vibrant, and good church looks like. And so I want to walk you through a few of these churches. Look at what he says in chapter uh, 2, verse 2, to the church in Ephesus. He says in verse 2, I know your deeds your hard work, and your perseverance. So Jesus starts right out and says, healthy churches work hard. Healthy churches do good deeds. Healthy churches help people. They serve their community. They make a difference. But now look at what he says in verse four. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. So Jesus says to them, Ephesus, you're working hard. You're making a difference. You're serving your community. But at some point along the way, Jesus says, you have stopped loving me. And I find that there are two kinds of dysfunctional churches. There are churches that love the work of the church more than they love the head of the church. Right? So there are churches that love to serve the community. They love to make a difference in the community. But at some point, they've just stopped loving the head, which is Jesus, at some point along the way. And the problem is there is that when a church falls into that, uh, people fail to see the difference between us and the Red Cross or any other charitable organization. Our service is good. Our service should happen. But listen, there is not any way that we could serve somebody that's going to change their heart unless and until they give their life to the Savior. The Savior is the only one that can change their heart. So whatever we do and however we serve, they need to see the Savior in that service. Otherwise, how's their heart going to change? The only one that can change their heart is Jesus. On the opposite side of the equation, there are churches that love Jesus and worship Jesus, but they don't do any tangible good in their community. Here's what my grandfather used to say. My grandfather used to say about people, he'd say, man alive, they are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, right? <laughs> and my grandfather was from the South, so then he'd say, bless their heart, <laughs> which basically in Southern language means they're an idiot, all right? That they are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Healthy churches are not, you know, are we going to love Jesus or are we going to serve the community? No, that's a false dichotomy. Healthy churches do both. They love and they work and they serve and they make a difference. Catch this, because they love Jesus so much. That's why they love and they serve and they work, because they love Jesus so much. And so as people see our love for Jesus, they are drawn to him and he changes their heart and he changes their mind and he makes them new. All right, let's move on to Smyrna. All right, check out verse nine. He acknowledges to Smyrna, he says, I know that you are afflicted and poor and you have been slandered 
and persecuted. One of the things happening in Smyrna is that the followers of Jesus had been locked out of the marketplace. All right, they were unable to buy. They were unable to sell. They had been locked out. It was, to do business in Smyrna was almost impossible for, for, for Christians. And so we learn later on in the book of Revelation that when the Antichrist comes, he is going to kind of try to force onto Christians this thing called the mark of the beast. And, and I know for those of you that don't attend, this is all getting weird. Just stick with me just for a minute. Uh, he's going to force on us the mark of the beast. And the mark of the beast is a mark that is going to open up the marketplace to Christians. Right? And you're going to be able to buy and you're going to be able to sell just by showing this mark in these um, these controlled uh, parts of society that you show the mark, you're able to buy. You show the mark, you're able, you're able to sell. Now, I want you to think about, for the Christians living in Smyrna, how tempting it would be to get that mark. Right? You've not been able to provide for your family. You're locked out of the marketplace. You can't get a job. You can't buy. You can't sell. You can't do anything. And all of a sudden, there's this person that's promising, if you'll just renounce your faith, if you'll just renounce your faith, and you'll get this little mark on you, this little mark on you, the marketplace is going to open to you. I think this is why Jesus says to Smyrna, I know, I know what's going on, but here's what he says, be faithful. Be faithful and don't compromise, don't give in. And it's so easy to give in when, when you're living in this kind of cloak of, of, of fear. And look at what he says in verse 10. This is actually really tough, and I'll explain that in a minute. But he says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Do you know why he says, I know that you're about to suffer persecution for 10 days? The reason he says that is that 10 days was the maximum amount of time you were able to be kept by the authorities before they either had to let you go or kill you. They didn't let a lot of people go. And so what Jesus is saying to Smyrna is I know a lot of you are about to suffer until the point of death. Hang on. Don't give up. And there is a crown of, of life coming for those that endure. So he says, I know that in the face of death, in the face of persecution, and I know that there's temptation to compromise. And I know that there's temptation to give in. I, I know that there's temptation to just go along with the flow. But don't do it because there is a greater reward coming for, for you from your heavenly father if you stay faithful even to the point of death. He healthy churches are full of people that refuse to compromise. They are full of people that refuse to compromise. They are followers of Jesus that love him more than anything. And the world can promise us big promotions. The world can promise us so much happiness. The world can promise us a better life if we just give in and cave in and don't follow through on our convictions. But healthy churches are full of people that just refuse because they know that any reward that, that comes to them from, from their Heavenly Father is going to be so much greater than any reward this world can offer and, and promise. And so as, here's the thing, as the end times unfold in the book of Revelation, we're going to see this over the next several weeks, as the end times unfold in the book of Revelation, there are going to be countless opportunities for Christians to compromise. 
Christians are going to be called bigoted. Christians are going to be called intolerant in the book of Revelation. Christians are going to be thrown into jail. Christians are going to be locked out of the marketplace. Christians are going to be made fun of. There are going to be countless opportunities to compromise. That if, if I just give in, all of this stuff's going to go away. And again and again and again in the book of Revelation, the advice is going to be this. Overcome. 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 Because there is a crown of life that is coming for you. There is a reward coming for you. And he doesn't even tell us what it is. He just kind of whets our appetite. Don't you wish he would have told you what it is? Right? What is the crown? You'll find out when you get there. But I'm telling you, it is so much better than anything this world can offer you. So, so there's going to be lots of opportunities to compromise. Don't you do it. The church in Thyatira, verse 20. He talks about uh, this Jezebel. All right? Never something you would call your daughter because we know this name has been associated kind of with evil and I just apologize if anyone has a granddaughter named Jezebel. But anyway, um, you, don't, you don't see it a lot is, is, is my point because uh, this name got associated with a woman in the Old Testament who ended up uh, killing, uh, killing uh, several of the prophets of God. And so this woman's name's not actually Jezebel. She's coming to the church. He calls her a Jezebel. Uh, she comes into the church and she begins to mislead the Christians there with false teaching. And apparently the Christians gave into it because they didn't know any better. And pastorally, I just want to say this is a concern of mine. Um, it, it is a concern of mine uh, that people do not know the truth of God's word like maybe we should. And so when we hear something that looks like the truth and smells like the truth but isn't actually the truth, a lot of us end up falling for it hook, line, and sinker because we don't actually know the truth of God's word. I came across a study this week that said, all right, this is Christians, all right? When it comes to Christians, 45% of us cannot name the gospels, um, uh, 45% of us cannot name more than three of the apostles. 60% of us cannot name at least five of the commandments. 12% of us think that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. <clears throat> 50% of us think that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. And 80, 82% of us think that the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is in the Bible. It's actually from Ben Franklin. 82%. And as the days unfold leading up to Jesus' return, I'm just telling you, this is scripture. People are going to say things that are going to sound like the truth and they're going to look like the truth and they're going to make a bunch of sense, but it's not the truth. And you and I are going to have to know the truth so we can see the difference between those things. The Bible says, listen, I'm not letting myself off the hook here. The Bible says even pastors are gonna give into this, that pastors and preachers are gonna wanna tickle your ears, the Bible says, as we're leading up to the end time. They're gonna wanna tickle your ears, and so they're gonna water down the truth. So here's what Jesus says. Healthy churches know the truth. They know the truth. I want you to know the truth. So that when someone makes some statement to you that looks and smells and sounds like the truth, but it's not actually the truth, so that you can recognize that as a falsehood and live your life accordingly. All right, let me give you an example of this. All right? So when somebody comes up to you and they say these words to you, God only wants me to be happy. 
That's in the Bible, right? God just wants me to be happy. When you hear that, you hear, that almost looks like the truth. It almost sounds like the truth. But I've read the Bible. I know that's not the truth. <laughs> I know that God's ultimate priority and God's number one priority is not my happiness. There's too much at stake in this world for God's number one priority to be my happiness. Now, God gives us all good things for our enjoyment. God certainly has worked things out in Cheryl and I's life at different times for, for us to enjoy things and, and have, uh, to, to be happy. But I know that God's number one priority is not my happiness. Because as soon as God's number one priority becomes my happiness, I start letting myself off the hook for all kinds of wretched behavior. God just wants to be happy, so I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. No, God's number one priority is your holiness. Your holiness. And so those, those things look very different. Holiness and happiness can sometimes look very, very different. Sometimes they're right on the same page, but often they are on very, very different pages. And so we've got to immerse ourselves in God's word a little bit better, gang. So that when someone says something that looks, sounds, and smells like the truth, but is actually a falsehood, we can identify it and live our lives accordingly. So we don't give in to some of this garbage, junk theology that is going around our culture. So I, I encourage people, I know this is going to sound self-serving, but believe me, it's not. I encourage people, I mean, please, please, please be in church as often as you can. Because in church, you are hearing messages from God's word. And not just this church, but a good, healthy, vibrant, Bible-believing church. Get yourself in one so that you can hear a message from God's word as often as possible. And then I tell people, never, ever, ever underestimate the power that comes from just reading God's word. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is a great place to start. It's the Gospels. And just open it up. To, to Matthew this week and just start reading it. Um, our church is going through a thing together right now where this series is 11 weeks long and, and we're reading two chapters of Revelation every week just together. We're, we're, we're just getting into God's word a, a little bit because you're not gonna understand everything that you read. I don't understand everything I read. I know Bible scholars that, that teach at Christian colleges that would promise you that they don't understand everything they read, but you'll understand a lot of it. You'll understand a lot of it, and you will be blessed by the reading of God's word. And when you know the truth, you'll be able to see past this junk theology, this crazy stuff that goes around our culture that almost sounds true but is not true. All right? The church in Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds, that you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead, so wake up. All right, so the church in Sardis apparently had a very strong reputation in their community. All right, people were talking about this church. People, th this church had one of the strongest reputations that you can have in, in the first century. But Jesus says about them, I know the truth. Right? Everybody else thinks you're one thing. Everybody else thinks you're alive and you're vibrant and you're doing well. But Jesus says to this church in Sardis, I know the truth. I know you're actually spiritually dead. Right? Now notice that spiritually dead does not equate to Jesus not being involved. Jesus is still with this church, right? Even though, even though he's considering them spiritually dead. But he says, man, you gotta breathe some life into your church. You gotta wake up. You, get, you gotta get some energy about your church and your community and the people that you're around. And so, so the, the danger of Sardis is this, your reputation doesn't match your reality. 
And do you know how many churches, how many people have been helped by churches with a strong reputation for being alive? You know how many they've helped? Not as many as a church that actually is alive, right? So Jesus, I want you to actually be alive. Wake up, become alive, get excited about your city, your church, and your God. See, sometimes it's easy to get excited about the things that your church's reputation was built on. Right? Every church has gotten their reputation built on something, and sometimes it's easy to look to the past and be excited about all of those things. Just to be honest with you, one of the things for our church, it's Bethlehem Walk. Right? For, uh, for, for this church, it's building campaigns. It's previous church programs. And we sometimes think about those things as the good old days, and they were good days. But listen, in healthy churches... Our vision of the future is stronger than our memory of the past, right? Our vision and excitement about the future is stronger than our memory of the past. And here's why this is so important. God has placed us where we are in Northwest. God has placed us where we are not to be a museum of the past, but to be a hospital for the present. Here's what I mean by that. People are hurting today. People are being deceived about what is true today. People are being discouraged today. People need hope today. And so he says to this church in Sardis, you gotta wake up. You gotta wake up. I know about all the things that built your church's reputation. I know that you had a strong reputation. At one point you were alive. He says, but you gotta, you gotta wake up and you gotta meet people where they're at today because we have the message of, of Jesus. We have the man of Jesus and people need Jesus today. So that's all we have time for with that. But here's what I want you to see, and you can read some of the others on your own. Do you understand why this text is in the Bible? Right? That the health of the church is of great importance to Jesus. Because we carry with us, the Bible says, we carry with us these, this message in these jars of clay, this jewel in a jar of clay. And Jesus says, you have this message. You have this man of Jesus. And it is so important that you be healthy and vibrant so that you can carry message to pe- the message to people that really need it. So we as a church, you see some of this repeat terminology. We are called to endure in the face of suffering. We are called to stand for truth in the face of falsehood. We are called to service in the face of rampant selfishness. We are called to be overcomers. And I believe with every ounce of my being that as the end times of Revelation begin to unfold over the next several weeks in this church, that not literally, but as we read it in the, maybe, but I don't think so. All right. So I'm like, does he know something I don't know? I don't. All right. We're just reading the book of Revelation. I believe the church plays such a vital role as that unfolds that we will set an example for culture of what is true. We will set an example of what is right. We will set an example of what really matters. And we will show people where joy, hope, and peace, and salvation really comes from. And we will do it better, right? We'll do it better. It's not that we're not going to do it at all. We'll do it better if we're healthy. So we show people Jesus. So you say, so what what are you calling us to do here? Here's what I'm calling us to do. I'm calling us to be like Jesus. You stand with a church. You stand with a church. It doesn't have to be this church. I'm not trying to sell Northwest here. This is the big C church I'm talking about. But you are like Jesus, and you are among and with and stand with a church. That is the take home. Jesus is with and among the church. He wants us to be healthy. There is a church somewhere that needs you. So we stand with 
the church and for the church because we have the man and the message that everyone needs. So what do we do? When everyone else complains about the church, we celebrate the church. When everyone else is leaving the church, we serve our church. When everyone else hates the church, we love our church. We are like Jesus Christ. We stand with and for and, and, and near and in the church because Jesus is the man and the message that this, church need, that, that this world needs and the church has it. The church has the man and the message and we play a vital role as things are gonna unfold because Jesus is with us. We play a vital role and so we need to be as healthy as we can possibly be. Will you stand with me? We are gonna sing a song of invitation and uh, I'd, love to, I'd love to talk with you and pray with you and, and meet you today. Uh, if you have any, any prayer requests or prayer needs, one of the great things that, that churches do is we, we pray for each other. So I'm gonna be up here and uh, we've got uh, some prayer counselors up here as well. We'd love to pray with you if you have a prayer need. And uh, if you are interested in uh, beginning a relationship with Jesus and, or maybe his bride, the church, we'd love to talk to you about that as well, about what it looks like to stand with and for a church. So uh, we're gonna sing a song of invitation. You guys wanna come forward? And uh, let's go ahead and pray together for right now. All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for the church. Uh, I know that it has become uh, culturally the thing to do uh, to criticize the church. And I don't want to rail on that too much, Lord, because I, I think it's just going to continue and, and maybe even get a little bit worse. Um, that, that the church has become this thing that, everyone wants to complain about and everyone wants to criticize. Help us stand with the church, Lord. You stand with the church. You love the church. Help us to be the same way. We thank you for having us in church today. Uh, we thank you uh, that you're with the church. And Lord, we just want to see you more and more clearly. Uh, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.